You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to 2 Chronicles 15. 2 Chronicles 15. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7. 2 Chronicles 15, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read the text, and we have another prayer request here that I'm going to pray for before we begin the sermon. So, 2 Chronicles 15, verses 1 through 7. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there, were no, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reading of your word. Father, we do pray that you would be pleased to bless us this morning as we come to your word, as we study your word. Be our teacher, O oh Father. Open our hearts and our minds. Father, bridle our wills. Master our affections, O oh Father, with your word. And transform us, O oh Lord, into the likeness of your Son. O oh, Father, we do pray this morning. We do pray for Dad's procedure tomorrow, Lord. We do pray that, Father, you'd be pleased to bless him as he goes uh, uh, through this procedure. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, enable this procedure to be efficacious in its goals, O oh Lord. And, Father, we thank you and praise you for him. And we thank you and praise you for the, uh, all of the blessings that he has received through the, the many, many um, physical animalies he's been through. Oh, Father, we thank you for his physicians and doctors. They've all been outstanding. And we pray, Father, that you will give them uh, grace and give them uh, the skills, oh, Father, uh, to do this procedure. Protect him, oh, Father, as he goes in and as he comes out, oh, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. This has been a week, and I say this on many fronts. I mean, obviously this week we come back together, and, and um, uh, really that has required an enormous amount of, of planning and work um, and coming back together and attempting to come back together to be video ready has presented enormous challenges. Trust me on that. Um, but the Lord has abundantly blessed us, and he's blessed us with uh, the skill sets within this congregation to be able to do the things that we have done. And um, what is amazing is really what we should recognize as a, a congregation is this is one of the first real struggles that Tri-State Community Church has had to face. It's such a young ministry. And um, this coronavirus really probably represents arguably one of the uh, first major struggles uh, for Tri-State Community Church. And I'm so happy to say that we have prospered through this. Um, we have been able to, to reach out to people that I don't think without the crisis we, couldn't, we, we, we could have reached out to. And that is such a major victory. There, there are people now who are willing to talk, at least uh, people within my own social sphere that are talking that uh, we're not talking in January or February, and um, that is tremendous. Um, so we've come through, and, and let me add that through this, uh, our, our income has been strong. Our income has been so strong. 
our presence has been strong and, and we're growing spiritually even in the midst of this. I mean, even using Zoom, I mean, I think it was the right choice to use that because we could at least hear each other talk. But all of those awkward moments at the end of every service, I mean, um, we all just stare at each other like, I'd really like to process the service, but it seems we should generate some kind of small talk, but I have no idea what to say. And we, um, we did it. We managed. Um, and God is so absolutely amazing in the way that he has blessed us. And, and uh, back to my first sediment, though. It's been a week. And I say this on many fronts because on top of the ravaging effects of the coronavirus and the unrest that we're enduring, um, the, the unrest of, uh, of the economy, you know, we're wondering about the economy, the health, the loss of life. Many people are grieving. Uh, on top of all of that, uh, we have seen mass unrest beginning in Minneapolis and then spreading throughout uh, almost all of our major cities and even to some of our what we might call secondary cities, uh, mass um, violence and looting and uh, things, criminal activity. And um, I, I, you know, I don't want to spend time this morning trying to parse the various elements that are involved in that. But um, as I've been watching it all week long, I've been thinking, you know, I. I think that I should say something about that. And um, what's really interesting is a couple of weeks ago, we began looking at a text that really isn't that well known, I think, to many of us. I mean, Second Chronicles, if we took a survey around the room, what is your favorite book? I'm not guessing Second Chronicles is coming up in the top three. Maybe, maybe it is. It's God's holy word. We venerate it and we love it, but it's probably not. I mean, you, you get lost in some of these old names and you don't, you don't even know how to pronounce them. But here we are in this uh, text. It's not real well known. And um, uh, in God's providence, um, we, <laughs> this text says a lot about what we're going through. Now, learning involves space and repetition. You've heard me say that many times. Uh, and I, I, I ask for your patience as I review for the third time the context of this passage. You know, we began in Second Chronicles 14, and each time I've been talking about the, the background. You know, King David uh, was arguably, in terms of earthly kings, King David is the greatest king that Israel uh, ever had. And his, under his military prowess uh, in military campaigns, Israel became a superpower under David. Uh, and then David uh, is succeeded by his son Solomon, who is uh, uh, conceived with his, uh, in the midst of an affair with Bathsheba. And uh, Solomon uh, is blessed by the Lord, and under Solomon, uh, Israel enjoys her most prosperous time. In fact, I read a couple of verses last week that pertain to the amount of gold that Solomon imported into Israel. Gold was imported in such quantities that silver became as nothing some of you remember those verses we looked at. But times of peace coupled with riches made for spiritual decline, didn't it? And quick spiritual decline. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, foolishly divides the nation between the north and the south. Um, and now you have the ten tribes in the north under the name of Israel. And you have the uh, two tribes in the south under the name of Judah. And Rehoboam's son, Abijam, walks in the same evil paths as his father. And, and then we come to Asa, who is Abijah's son. And if you look back to Second Chronicles 14, uh, verse 1, Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. And in his days the land had rest for ten years. And then in verse 2, we read that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, here we have a blessing, an incredible blessing. And we're told in verse 3 that he, uh, that he uh, carried on a number of spiritual reforms. He took away the foreign altars, the high places, broke down the pillars, cut down the ashram, commanded Judah to seek the Lord and the God of their fathers to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of all of the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars. And King 
the kingdom had rest under him. And furthermore, we looked at this a, a couple of weeks ago, demonstrating remarkable faith. Asa leads Judah's army up against a, a, an army of one million soldiers. And if you look at verse 11, we see Asa's faith commitment. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And the Lord gave victory in verse 12, didn't he? Soundly defeating this one million man army. Uh, it had to be uh, terrifying. I think it'd be terrifying to go up against 200 men with swords. Uh, one million. And this brings us to chapter 15. Uh, in verse 1, we're introduced to a prophet. His name's Azariah. And we're told that the Spirit of God comes upon him. That is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is empowering Azariah to bring a word, if you will, uh, to King Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, verse 2 there. And if you recall last week, I brought up a point. In fact, I had kind of two points running side by side. And I want to do that again this morning. Uh, kind of having two points going side by side. I, won't, I don't want to just explain the passage this morning. As I'm explaining the passage, I want to show you how I've arrived at the conclusions I've arrived at. Because it's easy to get lost in these Old Testament narratives. And there's some things that we have to always keep in mind. Or we're going to misstep, and we're going to misstep greatly. If we're going to properly understand these texts, we need to be mindful of not only the context, but also the covenantal context. Uh, we, we, can, we can make a mess of this pretty quickly if we forget that, that point. Now, the Holy Spirit is empowering Azariah to bring this message. Now, who is he bringing the message to? Our text tells us he's bringing the message to King Asa and the people of Judah and the people of Benjamin, correct? Okay, who exactly are these people? Okay, let's, let's, you know, let's, let's be careful because they are not the United States. Okay? They, they are God's covenant people who are living and breathing and covenanted under the Mosaic Covenant. And it's really important that we make that distinction. It's really important that we make that distinction. Now, uh, let, me, let me use a popular objection to illustrate the importance of this, because we can do two things at one time. We can, I can show you how to answer these skeptics that sometimes will uh, raise objections against Christianity, and I can show you the importance of this at the same time. So we're getting the benefit of two for one here. It is a little bit of a digression, but I think it's worth it. Now, if you look down to verses 12 and 13, of 2 Chronicles 15. And I've been waiting for someone to ask me about this. Uh, no one has yet, but I'll probably be getting questions after the service, perhaps. And I welcome them. Uh, I welcome them. 2 Chronicles 15, verses 12 and 13. Now, in response to Azariah's prophecy, okay, we're told that they enter into a covenant, this is verse 12, to seek the Lord the God of their fathers. Let me stop right there just for a second. The covenant they're entering into is probably best understood as a, as a um, kind of a renewal of the Mosaic covenant. I think that's what's going on in that text. They're not making a new covenant, but they're renewing the covenant that was already made by their forefathers uh, under Moses. Okay? They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. Now look at verse 13. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. Now, the skeptic has a field day with texts like this. Now, some of us have maybe even had these questions asked to ourselves personally. Uh, but others, probably most of us, have heard the objection that goes something like this. How can you believe in a God or a religion that murders people for not converting? Or how can you believe in a Bible that commands those who do not seek the Lord to be put to death. How can you believe in a Bible that would, that would teach that? It's a common objection. And how should we respond? Well, we respond with the con we start with the context. And not just the context, but the covenantal context. These commands take place within the context 
of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, unfortunately, we don't know these things that well, which uh, sometimes can leave our eyes maybe gazing a little bit whenever we get these kinds of objections uh, raised to us. Um, we, We need to learn these things a little bit better. When Israel is delivered out of Egypt by God, He brings them out into the wilderness he, conven- he, he, he assembles them, and then under Moses, he gives them a, a number of laws, and he sets up a government that we would call a theocracy, okay, a theocracy. In other words, God is king of this government, and these laws specify how they are to function as a theocracy, and what's important that we understand is that the people of Israel heard these laws. These laws were explained to them, and they agreed. They said, this we will do. And they covenanted with God as a people group. They covenanted with God uh, to uh, obey these, uh, these laws given to Moses. Now, here's an important point to always keep in mind when studying these Old Testament narratives. Okay, God made a covenant promise to Israel, that if they served him with faithfulness and integrity and obedience, he would prosper them. He would prosper them. But if they broke the covenant, when they would, then they would fall into ruin. And we need to, we need to understand that. that if, they, if they obey the covenant promises, there is a promise by God that they will prosper. Uh, this afternoon, we don't have time to get into all of that this morning, but you can look at Deuteronomy 27 and 28, especially Deuteronomy 28, where you'll read a, lot, a bunch of... Uh, it'll start out with blessings for covenant faithfulness, and there are wonderful, gracious, amazing promises. But the bulk of that chapter concerns curses for covenant disobedience. Uh, and and they're, they're, they're severe for sure, and we're going to get to that here in a moment. Um, so if they, if they obey the covenant, there's, there's all of these uh, great blessings, but if they, if they break the covenant, uh, there's nothing but ruin. And the people of Israel embrace this covenant. And uh, we call it the Mosaic Covenant because it's enacted under Moses. All right. Now, the laws of the Mosaic Covenant can be divided into three parts. They're pretty easy to remember. Uh, there's the moral law then the, the, the civic law, if you will, and the ceremonial law. Uh, the moral law is, bound, is binding all people at all times. Uh, the moral law would be the Ten Commandments. We could summarize them the way Jesus does. Jesus summarizes them by saying, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. That's a summary of the first four commandments. And as we study the Westminster Confession of Faith, we're going to be studying these commandments in, in some detail. And if you're really into it, you can, you can look at the larger catechism and see them actually in great detail. The larger catechism takes these laws and, and uh, really studies and parses these things out. Uh, but we have the moral law. That's binding on all people at all times and all places. Then we have, uh, we'll say, the ceremonial law. That's easy enough. What is the ceremonial law about? That's about the sacrificial system. I'm really thankful that we don't have sheep in here, uh, that we have to sacrifice the sheep. And, you know, I don't like killing anything, you know. Um, I I just don't like killing things, and I'm really happy that we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. That sacrificial system pointed to Christ. And that sacrificial system was to cease after Christ shed his blood upon the cross. And that sacrificial system was laid out under the administration of Moses. So you have the moral law binding on all people, all places, all times. The sacrificial law uh, for this specific time, for a specific purpose, namely to be a schoolmaster to lead us to Jesus. The moral law is that as well. Uh, And then we have the civil law or the civic law which pertains to the government of Israel. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, Exodus 22, uh, for example. Exodus 22, verse 20. You know, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Um, You don't need to turn there. I am going to ask you to turn to Deuteronomy 17, though. But let me read Exodus 22. 22 again, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. That was one of the civil laws that were on the books under this Mosaic administration. And these are the laws that skeptics are often pointing to 
whenever they say, how can you believe in a Bible uh, that would um, destroy somebody for believing differently? How, I mean, that's a lot of times the way the, the, uh, the, the objection goes. More about that in a moment. But look at Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 7, where we get another example of this. Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. Fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. If there is found among you, verse 2, within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing His covenant, verse 3, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. The person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And that last little phrase right there uh, is the point of this law. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And if you back up just a couple of chapters to Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5, I'll give you another example. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Did you get that? Even if they, even if they, even if they, they pull off some kind of miraculous sign, yet they're leading you away from the true God. You're not to follow them. You're not to follow them. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, these laws seem extreme to many in our present culture, but uh, this is chiefly because our present culture has no problem with unbelief. We have to understand that. We've become so, uh, we, we, we're so asleep as a culture, unbelief doesn't bother us as a culture. It just doesn't bother us. Our present culture has no problem with rebelling against God. That doesn't, doesn't bother us. Our present culture has no problem with rebelling against God's authority. That's, that's not a problem. Our present culture believes that it can live any way that it wants to, and God will be there to bless them with wealth, health, and happiness. I mean, that's, I'm not throwing any stones. It's just, this is, this is the state of things right now. It's simply the state of things. But it's way out of touch with reality. I mean, the penalty, the penalty we see in these verses that we're reading from the Mosaic Law should in and of themselves apprise us of the severity of the crime. Our God is holy. He is just. He's not capricious. He's not, he's, he's not an ogre. Uh, the, the, the severity should apprise us of the heinousness of the crime. Now, um, the penalty is severe. Our skeptic friends are with us on that. But what about the crime? In their estimation, the crime is minimal. See, that's what's the, the question that's being asked is pregnant with some presuppositions that we need to understand. If I say, how can you believe in a God? How can you believe in a God that would, that, that would uh, terminate someone for unbelief? Now, impregnant in that question is the assumption that unbelief is no big deal. You see that? 
And that's a false assumption. It's a false assumption. It's false. False prophecy is dangerous. It does not seem like anyone believes that anymore. I think many do believe it. I was bouncing this off Tammy yesterday. I was like, it just doesn't seem like anyone believes that anymore. And uh, Tammy, the, the, the line that's in my sermon next is, uh, I should put quotation marks because it's hers. It's not mine. She probably doesn't like me sharing that with you. <laughs> but it's not mine. <laughs> you should cite your references. <laughs> she said, I think many do believe it. They just ignore it. Oh, yeah. It's pretty good, isn't it? If you have any questions about this morning's sermon, see Tammy. <laughs> Ask all you want. <laughs> I drove separately this morning, so. <laughs> but it, it is, all kidding aside, it is an everything goes day, isn't it? It is an everything goes day, but false prophecy is false teaching, and it's putting words into God's mouth he didn't speak. Again, that, that doesn't seem like a big deal to a sinful culture, but a holy angel would dare not do such a thing. A holy angel would dare not do such a thing. It's putting, God's, putting words in God's mouth he didn't speak. It, it, you see, that it leads souls to ruin. It leads souls to ruin. Just, to sinful creatures, it's no big deal. But to a holy and just God, these things are absolutely abominable. Abominable. And he has every right to establish the penalty as he chooses. But back to Israel, they agreed to uphold these laws. And when you go to 2 Chronicles 15, 13, if you go back to there, what is Asa doing? He's simply calling us Israel. Asa is not legislating new law in so much as he's looking back to the law that they've already agreed to. He's returning back to what they've already covenanted, what his forefathers have already covenanted to do. And, of course, they have the blessings of the covenant, these promises of blessing in view as they do so. Now, idolatry, false prophecy, false teaching are things that would lead the nation to certain ruin. It was promised that that would be the case. And anyone who had a copy of the Old Testament law would have had a copy of Deuteronomy 28. And they would have had a copy, the bulk of that chapter pertains to curses for covenant infidelity. That's the crime. That's the crime. A false prophet, if left unchecked, had the potential to ruin the whole nation, to ruin everything. Idolatry, if left unchecked, had the potential to ruin the whole nation. Therefore, Israel was commanded to play no games with these kinds of perpetrators. They were to purge the evil among them immediately. Let me put it another way, a way it might be easier to remember. When a false prophet speaks up, in ancient Israel, he does so in the same likeness as Satan in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, you shall not eat from any of the trees in the garden? You see, it's the same activity. And that begins to apprise our minds of the gravity of the heinousness of this crime. I had a seminary professor that said Adam, who was standing there passively while his wife was being duped by that, say, by, by that serpent, should have grabbed that serpent and snapped it by its neck. That puts it in perspective. If that's what Adam should have done to the serpent, then what should Israel do? You see, because, it, you know, we've all ran into our homes because of this coronavirus, because of its ability to infect, its ability to, uh, you know, to, 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 to scatter and spread through all of us. And, and there is a segment of the population in which this virus is very dangerous. But idolatry, idolatry spreads much more rapidly 
And it is not just deadly to a certain population, it's deadly to the whole population. So someone who would go in to propagate this stuff is coming in to lead to the ruin of everyone. And thus we see these commands that they should be put to death. Now, the question that comes, someone could be listening to me saying, well, Rick, are you suggesting we should do this today? No, please, don't do that to me. Should, should we enact these laws and penalties today? No, no, we're, we're, not, we're not in the Mosaic Covenant. Th- these laws weren't enacted to the world. They were enacted to see, this is why we have to keep this covenantal perspective in mind. The heathen nations all around Israel weren't under these laws because they didn't covenant to this. They didn't covenant to this. But why is it so important? Well, it's not just, it's not just important to answer the skeptic. And hope, hopefully, uh, all of us have a, at least the ability to begin to answer those, those objections. It's also to keep us from falling into the crime of evangelizing with the sword, which has been done in church history, unfortunately. We don't want to do that. We evangelize with the power of the gospel, not the power of the sword. But we do learn some important principles here. And one is we learn what happens to a soul who leads a life of idolatry apart from Christ. That's how we apply this. When we look at those verses, we don't want to put those on our law books today. That would be a misapplication of these verses. But what do we glean from these verses? We glean the principle of how heinous idolatry and false prophecy and false teaching is. And we also gain from this how deadly unbelief is. This graphically shows us the nature and danger of unbelief. Unbelief is dangerous. I mean, unbelief. Do you see how I'm applying this? I mean, should we adopt these laws and penalties today? Absolutely not. I want to say it again. Absolutely not. I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't even want to leave the possibility open for me to be misunderstood. No. But these laws were given and enacted. Uh, they, They teach us how dangerous unbelief is. Now, let's go back to 2 Chronicles 15. And Ezra's words to Asa and to the people of Judah and Benjamin. If you look with me to verse 3 there, Ezariah says, For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. Now, this is pointing back to the lawless days of the period of the judges, like I said last week. And some of you, if you're familiar with the judges, um, it's, it's a really low point in Israel's history, isn't it? Especially as you get towards the end of the book. You get in chapters 19 and further. I mean, it's a real low point. Um, and... The people of God would backslide. Some might even say apostatize. And God would raise up the neighboring nations around them, and they would become oppressed. And then they would call out to God, then God would deliver them. And that cycle would go over and over and over again. Uh, We sometimes refer to that as the cycle of Judges. The ethos of the time is well described by Judges 17, verse 6, which says, In those days there was no king in Israel. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Listen to this next line. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds like it could be written this afternoon, doesn't it? Everybody just do what they want. There's no law, meaning the law was not taught and obeyed, and there's no obedience. There's, and let me say it this way. Where there's no obedience, there's no Lord. At least we think there's no Lord. Or at least we think we don't have to obey the Lord who's there. We just do whatever we want. And that is the ethos of the times. Now, my intentions were to preach on this subject this morning, verse 3, really. But given all the unrest and everything that's going on, there's so much commotion going on right now. I think that we need to look down to verses 5 and 6. And I think it's so amazing in God's providence, we only have to skip verse 4. And we get to verses 5 and 6. And what do we have before us? In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who come in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God was troubled, with, troubled them with every sort of distress. Commotion. Now, as I've been watching the things that have been happening right before us in the wake of the terrible murder of, of George Floyd, 
felt I needed to speak about this. And most of you know me well enough to know that I don't preach with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. In fact, I very rarely do what I'm doing right now because this stuff's always going on. I want to stop. We've got so many things to do. We're not going to start doing that. But there's so much commotion right now. And we're dwelling in it, and we're living in it, and we're breathing in it, and we're getting it all over us. And it's affecting us. And God's Word has a great, great, a great message for all of this. And here we are in God's providence, only one verse away from verses that speak to this. I think that's amazing. In verse 5, those times, there was no peace not to him who went out or to him who come in. So in other words, it's a time of lawlessness which would have made travel very dangerous. That's one of the things that we could glean from that. There's greatest disturbances, afflicted, all the inhabitants of the land. Everyone's affected by it. Verse 6, they're broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. Look at this. For God troubled them. Who troubled them? God troubled them. He troubled them with every sort of distress. God troubled them with every sort of distress. It's a kind of a knee-jerking little caveat there, isn't it? Uh, so here we see great distress and unrest, and we also see that God's involved in it. Now, how can God get involved in this? How can He get... It's very easy for God to get involved in this. How does God get involved in this? All He has to do is just step back with His common grace just a little bit, and we do the rest. What keeps us from literally killing each other? What keeps us from being as bad as we can possibly be is God's covenant grace. And one of the things that will happen in hell Sometimes people will ask me this question. In fact, one time I had, I think she was 12 years old, asked me this question. This 12-year-old asked me this question and said, you know, Pastor Rick, is God present with people in hell? Because I hear he's absent from people in hell. I said, well, I thought this was an amazing question coming from such a young mind. I said, well, he's both. They said, what? He's both? He is absent. We can say in one sense that when a person dies in unbelief, they are now eternally separated from the presence of the Lord. We can say that as long as we understand that that person is separated from the Lord in the respect that he or she is separated from his grace. But that person is present before his judgment. before his judgment. Now, um, how is God involved in this? Well, all he does is take and draws back his common grace. And as he draws back his common grace, what happens? Things like we've been watching on TV One of my seminary professors, who also later became my mentor and advisor and personal friend, once said, you want to know where God is? You want to know where God is? God is where sound teaching is. That's where God is. You know, that's such an important message because a lot of times people are looking for a church. What are they looking for? Looking for all the wrong things. All the wrong things. Yeah, fortunately, people are caught up in the music of all things. I don't like the music. You know, I don't like the organ, or I don't like the guitar. Or they got drums, or whatever. Oh, man, is that so... Uh... Look at the teaching. If you want to find out where God is in a place, look at the teaching, and take what you're hearing and compare it to what's written in His Word. Azariah comes to speak to Uzzah, but Azariah doesn't come on his own to speak to Uzzah. Our verse tells us that Azariah is powered empowered by the Holy Spirit to come and speak to Uzzah and to the people of Judah and to the people of Benjamin, isn't he? Because if he was never empowered by the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't have anything to say. Nothing more than maybe Dr. Phil or Oprah would have to say. 
See, if you want to know where sound teaching is, or you want to know where God is, look for sound teaching. And that is where you will find the Lord. Now, when God withdraws his presence from nations, cities, and peoples, the result will be chaos, lawlessness, and unrest. And God has his purposes for doing this. We can say, what is his purpose for doing this? He has his purposes for doing this. And judgment is certainly one of his purposes for doing this. Judgment is one of his purposes for doing this. But grace is also one of his purposes in doing this. Look at verse 4. You know, we've skipped verse 4, but verse 4 is lovely and wonderful. But when in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. He was found by them. I, I've, already, you know, I've already said what a great praise it's been. It's, last, time I, last time we were doing this, we were looking at each other in those little boxes on Zoom, you know? And we made the best of that. It wasn't bad, right? We had fun with that. We were ready. We'd had our fun. We were ready to be done, right? We'd had our fun. We'd, we'd, we were ready to be done. But I have to confess that just thinking about that Zoom for a minute made me lose my train of thought, you know? Uh, I could try to hide it, you know, but not in front of the camera I want. Verse 4, in their distress, they t- I just suddenly saw all of you in your boxes. I mean, it's like, and I couldn't hear a thing but me. But when in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found of them. There's judgment going on for sure, but there's grace going on. And the point that I had has come back to me, is that in the midst of this, corona- this coronavirus, it was there were people who were seeking, who wouldn't have been seeking if it weren't for, the, for that crisis. You see? There, there, there's judgment going on for sure, but there's also grace going on. And that is a beautiful thing, isn't it? That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now again, the context is very important here, or else we'll misstep. Us and the people of Judah and Benjamin are God's people under the Mosaic Covenant, and there was a promise in that covenant pertaining to obedience in that covenant, there was a promise. If they obeyed the covenant, if they were faithful in the covenant, if they, were, if they, they, if they um, uh, approached the covenant with integrity, then they would be blessed. And a lot of those blessings are material blessings. If you read Deuteronomy 28, you'll see there are material blessings. Material blessings. Though Israel was promised under this administration, if they obeyed, they would flourish. And the return to the covenant led by us, they had this promise in view for sure. Now, we need to be careful because people do this all the time. Does this promise remain for us today under the new covenant? Let me be really careful here. I want to be really careful here. Has God promised us that if we walk with Christ, we will prosper materially? Can we just simply go to these verses and say, look, look what Asa did. And can, can, we, can we draw those lines? If we come to Christ, God will bless us. He will bless us. But is there a promise that he's going to bless us materially, with material things? No, because you see, the new covenant is greater. God isn't going to waste our time with material stuff. He's got stuff that's so much greater for us, like the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not just coming upon us so that we can go speak to Asa, but coming upon us and dwelling in our hearts. So we have to be really careful. Will we prosper? Absolutely. May we prosper materially? Maybe. God often does that, by the way. If you begin to, listen, you begin to run your finances the way we're taught to run our finances in Proverbs, you're going you're gonna to be blessed. You know, you're just simply going to be blessed. Uh, that, that is what will happen. But is there a specific covenant promise for material blessing in the new covenant? Uh, well, let me show you some verses, and we can, you, we can come to our own opinion on that. Um, turn to Luke 21, verse 5. Jesus is near the temple, 
And there are some who are speaking about the temple, how beautiful it is, its noble stones and offerings. We're told there in verse 5, Luke 21, verse 5, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray for many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be, do not be terrified for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Now, some of you will know that Jesus is speaking primarily about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But what we have to understand about Jesus' discourse is kind of like what I'm doing here this morning. Jesus has a couple of thoughts twisted together like a piece of stranded wire where you've got, you've got wires, you know, that are twisted together. That Cat 6 cable that we were running through the walls is like that. It's twisted together, you know. It's got a number of strands that are they're in there and they're twisted. That's, that's the reduced crosstalk. You don't have to worry about that. But, um, but Jesus has a couple of strands of, of, of uh, thoughts being twisted together here. Actually, there's more than, more than two. But let's just talk about two right now. And that's the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But it's also the ethos, if you will, of the day or the days between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. What, is the, what are times going to be like during that period of time? What is life going to be like during that period of time? And if you look at verse 9, he says, When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. He's given us a heads up of what things are going to be like while we await his second coming. While he's also teaching about the destruction of the temple. We have to, we've got to catch the scent of both of these things. So Jesus is speaking of wars and tumults. Now some of you, has anybody got an NIV open? Or any NIV readers here this morning? If you have an NIV open, okay, good, we got one, good. Then you're reading revolutions, right? In verse 9. When you hear of wars and revolutions, or revolution, uh, do we have any King James versions open this morning? Come on, got one King James, I know, because I gave it to her. She's got one. <laughs> She's not in the right spot. Didn't mean to put you on the spot, especially given you weren't on the right spot. I can help you. It's the word commotion. I like that. Commotion. Revolution. I think revolution's narrow. It's, it's a little bit narrow. We think of revolution, we think of, we speak specifically of revolting against a, revolting against a government or something. Revolution's not wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong. No, no, no. It's, that's one of the meanings of the word. Uh, tumult's one of the meanings of the word. But commotions. Commotions. Um, listen to the King James Version of verse 9. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. I love that. I think that's so great. By and by, you know. The Greek can be translated to malts, revolutions, commotions, or even instability. Instability. I like commotions a lot. But there's something also really interesting about this word that you're going to really like. The underlying Greek word can also describe, and listen to this, maltreatment by mob violence. Maltreatment by mob violence. That's been going on all over our land all week long, hasn't it? Maltreatment by mob violence. It, it would describe any kind of con commotion. I would call that a commotion, any kind of commotion. 
So this is our first physical service in weeks because we've been shut in by the coronavirus, but Jesus tells us to expect this. Look at verse 11. He says there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence. So when we watch our news and we see this mob violence, let us remember what Jesus has told us to expect this in verse 9. I could translate verse 9 like this. I, this would be, you know, you know, if you were in Greek class in some seminary somewhere and you translated verse 9 this way, your, your teacher would, would give you good, good marks. If you said, but, ye, but when ye, and if you put ye in there, he'd love you because you're, you're showing it's, it's, it's you plural, but when ye shall hear of wars and maltreatment by mob violence, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass. Okay, what are we to make of this? Well, the coronavirus, the mass rioting, stealing, violence, and these mobs, what are we to make of this? Well, I have several things I want to leave you with that we're to make of this. For starters, first of all, we're to expect these things because Jesus says they must first come to pass before the end. In other words, expect to live in a day where these things are coming and these things are going. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Living with an expectation of these kinds of things, what does that do to our anxiety over them? It comforts us. It reduces us. You see, if you're not expecting these things, if, especially if you're thinking, listen, if I walk really faithfully to Jesus, then I'm going I'm to be taken away from all of this kind of stuff. This kind of stuff's not going to affect me. And then all of a sudden you see it happening. You're going to be wondering what in the world is going on. This is why Jesus is showing us that this must first come to pass. He has his reasonings for this. One is judgment. The other is grace. He has his reasonings for this. But when we come to expect this kind of stuff, what does that do to our anxiety over it? It's going to begin, you're going to take it all away. I mean, if you own a business down on Main Street somewhere and they've just knocked the glass out of it and they're setting it on fire, you're going to be anxious. But then you could look to the Lord and you say, Lord, but you've told me in verse 9 and you've told me in verse 11, this is going to be like this. And you were right. And I have more reason to be confident in everything else you say because you're right again like you always are. And you gave me that business the first time. If I'm to have that business the second time, you'll give it to me. See how that strengthens your faith? And as it strengthens your faith, it takes away your anxiety, doesn't it? So I'm really concerned about the commotion that we're all living in here. Because it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We're to expect these things. But expecting those things, expecting them reduces our anxiety over them. Secondly, the believer is not to be afraid. Look what Jesus tells us. He says, do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. This, this makes me think of one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture I preached at my grandfather's funeral. It's John 16, These things, Jesus says, these things I have spoken unto you that in ye might have peace, or that in me ye might have peace. Say that real fast. In me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. See, he's telling us this. He's telling this. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Did Jesus overcome the world? By defeating Satan on the cross. By defeating the powers of darkness upon the cross. Jesus dies on the cross to take away the penalty of the sin of his people. And in doing so, he, de he defeats Satan's rule over them, and he overcomes the world by defeating darkness. I mean, listen to this, loved ones. I mean, if, if you're in Christ this morning, even though you're in the midst of all these things that are going on, even though we're in the midst of all this commotion, the coronavirus, mob riots, injustice, political, emotional, spiritual, psychological unrest, you hear all that? This is happening to you. This commotion is affecting you emotionally. It's political. It's spiritual, it's psychological. I mean, we're really caught in a web of a lot of stuff right now that I don't even know that we really even realize what kind of effect it's having on us. But even though we're in the midst of all of this, even though we're in the midst of all of this, if you're in Christ Jesus, you are in this sense above it. You may be in the midst of it, but you're also above it. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm thinking... 
the thoughts that the Apostle Paul gives us in Ephesians 2 and verse 6. What does Paul say? He says that, and he says this to those who are in Christ Jesus, if you're in Christ Jesus with saving faith, he says of you that he hath raised you up together and made you sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means in one sense you are here, but in another sense you're with Christ seated in the heavenly places. So we are in the midst of it, being affected by it, but only to a certain measure. There's no reason for it to overcome us because we're, we're not, we may be in it to it up to our necks, but we're not completely submerged in it. If there were no Christ, we would be completely submerged in it. But there's a sense in which we are above it. We are above it. And that's what we have to, we have to put our minds on that. Christ, I'm in the midst of this, but you've raised me and you've seated me with me. I am yours. You are mine. And it's, it's putting our eyes on things that are above, isn't it? And this in part explains how believers can have peace in the most dire circumstances. It's because they're in this sense, we're above those circumstances. Our peace is not circumstantial. Our peace is not left to the tyranny of the circumstances that are all around us. If it were, we could have no peace. Jesus would simply say, listen, it's just going to be a rough ride. You're not going to have any peace at all. That's not what he says. He says it's going to be a rough ride, but I'm with you always to the end of the age. Expect it to be a rough ride. It is a rough ride. Thirdly, may the coronavirus and the unrest of mob violence lead us to draw near to Christ. That's verse 4, 2 Chronicles, isn't it? May, it? may it be used to draw us nearer, nearer to Christ. I mean, when Asa was before that one million man army in 2 Chronicles 14, what did he do? He drew near to God. Such a beautiful prayer. Such a beautiful, 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 beautiful prayer. He draws near to God. And what does he say? He draws near to God. And I love it in this translation. Verse 11, Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help. I was pressing this last week. Remember, it is nothing with thee to help. Oh, Lord, in the midst of everything that's going on right now, it is as nothing for you to help us. It is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Whether we're up against a million or we're up against two, it is nothing for you. Whether we are strong or we are weak, that is nothing for you. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, and let not man prevail against thee. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? Chalk that one up in your prayer book, because... That is a wonderful prayer. So may this coronavirus and this unrest of mob violence lead us to draw near to Christ. Here we draw from our text. And as we look at all the unrest going on in our land, ultimately we need not fear. We need not fear. Let us draw near to the Lord. Let us say with David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. Psalm 27, verses 1 to 3. Jesus makes it so clear that we'll have seasons of trouble, tribulation, trials, and storms, but he's overcome them all. And we look at the trajectory of all the commotion that's going on, we can be comforted by Luke 21.9. Luke 21.9. So much commotion, moral commotion, political commotion, physical commotion, violent commotion, spiritual commotion, emotional commotion, psychological commotion. Christ has overcome it all. And what is His word to us? His word to us is the title of this message. Do not be terrified. Heavenly Father, we so thank you. Father, you've spoken to us and there is not one thing that we could go through that you do not have a word for us. And your word for us, oh Father, as we go through these times of commotion where we're being affected in ways that we don't even, 
We, we can't even take inventory of, Father, and the damage it does to people. Oh, Father, we thank you. You've given healing to our hearts. You've given us faith that you have taken us and raised us above it, oh, Lord. We thank you, oh, Father, that in Christ Jesus, though we're in the midst of all of this commotion, we are still at the same time in this other sense seated with you in the heavenly places. And if we, if we read the first chapter of Ephesians, we recognize that we are in possession of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh, Father, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. And Father, we pray that you will fill our hearts with confidence in your words, that as we go forth from this place, Father, we will go forth from this place with your word to us. Do not be terrified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.